0: Uh, we are in Matthew chapter five, and we are in our series entitled "Upside Down Kingdom." As we've been looking at how Jesus, our King, is in essence giving his inaugural address. You know, it's fascinating. I've been reading about American presidents uh, for the last year and a half. Now I'm on number uh, I'm on number seven, Andrew Jackson. And uh, as I'm reading Jackson, and I'm hearing about his inaugural address. And just seeing how these guys set the tone in their inaugural address, that we kind of don't realize how much it was ambiguous back then. And he said it in a different way that really set his agenda on what he was going to do for the next four years. And what Jesus is saying is basically he's giving this inaugural address on how his kingdom is going to be and what is valued in his kingdom. And we see that he takes the world's understanding of how to live and turns it completely upside down. It's completely different than what the world values. And we've been breaking this kingdom part down and we're seeing that we're, we're talking about these kingdom attitudes, these beatitudes or beautiful attitudes and how we are to live and interact and, uh, and live this approval, um, living in this state of approval that we have in Christ. Now, today we're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. That's page 810 in your Bible, and I'm going to be using that and jumping back and forth through some other passages. But I want us to really get an idea of what this passage talks about, because it talks about being pure in heart. And I, I'm reminded of the story that came out in September. I don't know if you guys read this or not, about a guy named Glenn James in Dorchester, Massachusetts. Uh, Glenn was a, a homeless man, uh, just circumstances, ended up being homeless. He had some diseases and sicknesses that he was struggling with. Down is out. And I don't know if you've ever really interacted with a homeless person before. Uh, I've had the privilege of sitting down with uh, a homeless man one time, and we were just talking about life and how you live on the street. And it's, it's awful. I mean, it's really bad, just the circumstances, where you sleep at night, what you have to deal with. Uh, I said, what do you do when it gets cold? And he says, well, I wait for someone to go to an ATM or you have to go in the door. And then as soon as I, they, they go in or they come out, I, go, I walk in the door and I lay down and I sleep there on the floor until the police kick me out. I mean, it, and how you get food and how you panhandle, and he's just telling me on how to be a homeless man, basically. And I was just floored at how awful it was, and I thought I would do anything in my power to get out of that, if I could. That's me. And, and Glenn James has an opportunity that not every homeless person gets. He sees a backpack, he walks up, grabs it because no one's around opens it up, and he finds $40,000. Now, what would you do at that moment in time? You found $40,000. I think there was $38,000 uh, in traveler's checks and about $2,000 in cash. What would you do if you'd been a homeless man You're homeless? You'd been living on this street. You'd been struggling all this time. You could, you're starting to think, I could have a warm bed. I could have a meal. I could do this. Uh, what would you do? Would you keep the money? You know, I, I probably would. Quite honestly, I would think, it's manna from heaven. <laughs> God brought this here. But no, he doesn't do that. Instead, he grabs it. He realizes it's somebody's. So what's he do? first thing he does is he flags down a police officer. And he brings him over and he goes, I found all this money. And I want to return it. And the police officer was floored. Floored. And, and they couldn't believe it. Matter of fact, they ran a story on it in the news. It got national headlines. One man and I think it was in Virginia or North Carolina, was so touched by the story, he starts an online uh, fundraiser for this guy and ends up raising, to date, $158,000. <laughs> okay? And, and the reason he said, he goes, I've never seen such a person with such a pure or good heart. Now, we use that word heart a lot, don't we? Rarely do we talk about the actual physical muscle or organ. We talk about having someone having a, a black heart or a good heart or they're pure in heart or they're courageous in heart. And, and we use it as a metaphor to describe the center of person's essence, their being, their character, who they are. And Jesus is doing that too. He's saying that there are people, that we are to live such a life, that we are pure in heart, that we don't have any agenda. We want to do the right thing for God. And that's kind of what James did. Uh, Glenn James, but we're going to take that even deeper and further as we look into the condition of our heart. Now, our physical heart, what do we do to check out the condition of our physical heart? Anybody ever have a stress test before? They put you on the, the treadmill, right? They do that to you, Scott, and they, they hook you up. And they got all these things on you that hurt like crazy when they rip them off. Okay, and they got you on this, and you're and they're doing a heart to see how good you are, right? Now, if I were to look at my friend over here, Scott Brown, our elder, uh, Scott, Scott's a you're a runner, right? And, and I, I would look at you, and I'd say, great heart health, right? Now, what did, I mean, just from an outward perspective, he runs how many times a week? Did you run before the heart surgery? Okay, he ran here, several times a week. He would ask me, hey, you want to go running with me? I'm like, what time? He's like, six. I'm like, no thanks. I've been having a conversation with Pastor Sheets right then and there. Okay. Uh, but Scott uh, doing exercise, but the thing was is he had a genetic defect. And it, it didn't come out until he went in for a test. And he found that there was his heart, though it looked outwardly he looked good, inwardly there was a disease going on. There was a defect that need to have need to have it be fixed. Right? See, many of us, if we were to look at other people and we say, oh, they have a good heart. But see, we need to hook them up to the Word of God and do some serious tests and let the Word of God speak to the reality of our condition to determine if our heart's good or not. And I, and I guarantee something, when we hook ourselves up to the Word of God and see what the Bible says to us, our hearts are not as good as we think they are. See, we have a tendency to think, oh, we're not bad people. We're pretty good. But the problem is, is that we compare ourselves with a very arbitrary standard. We compare ourselves with other people. And we usually have a tendency to pick people that we're just a, we think we're just a little bit better than. But when we compare ourselves to God's standard, which is completely objective, then we find out that we have some serious heart problems. We have some serious spiritual heart problems, and if we're honest with ourselves, we will agree with God. And we will see that we do have a sin problem, that causes a defect and it needs to be fixed. And that's what we're going to talk about today is assessing the spiritual heart problem and Jesus always wants the heart. Always speaks about the heart. Jesus isn't so much about the outward behavior as he is about the heart. Time and time again, he speaks about the heart. And today that's what we're going to look at. What does it mean to be pure in heart? And what is the result of that? But before we go any further, let's pause for God's blessing on our message time. Father, We come before you asking you to run the full test, Lord. Help us to hook ourselves up to the word of God and by the power of your spirit, see into the reality and the essence of who we are that we might be able to have you perform surgery. Because, Lord, we want to be spiritually healthy. We want to have a right relationship with you. But, Lord, we also know that we struggle with sin in so many different ways. And, Lord, we ask that you bring to the surface the spiritual disease of sin and help us to understand how to live in righteousness and truly be pure in heart. Guide our time together today. Open wide our minds and hearts to receive the truth of who you are and what it is that you have for us as your word is being proclaimed, that your name might receive glory and we might be transformed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's jump in and jump into our text. We see Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, I, I, as we talk about heart, first thing I want us to do is um, assess our heart's health. I want us to be very honest, and as we're going to connect ourselves up to the Word of God and see what God has for us, we need to really get an idea of our heart's condition. So we need to assess our heart's health, just like, like Scott needed to find out, what is the reality of my, my heart? What's going on? What is my heart's condition? So I want us to be thinking of that. What is our heart's health? Not what we think it is, But what does the Bible say it is? Just like you could go into the doctor and the doctor could say to you, "Uh, how do you think your heart is? I think it's great. And then you get hooked up and you find out really how good your heart or bad your heart really is. So we need to be assessing our heart's health. And we go to the Word of God to see what God has for us. Now, the Bible is unequivocally clear that the heart is deceitful. It's deceitful. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, says this. The heart is deceitful above all things. You ever heard someone say, just follow your heart? That's one thing I can't stand about Disney. Disney always, oh, be true to yourself. Follow your heart. And I'm like, I want the Disney one about the heart being wicked above all things. Because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately Sick, who can understand it at our core? What that means is, is that our core spiritually, we have a desperate and, and despicable sin problem. That it, we are completely, it's completely deceitful. And it's also diseased. We all have a spiritual defect in our heart, it's diseased beyond repair. That's why he says, desperately sick. It can't be saved. And if our heart's sick, that means that we are sick all over. That's a muscle that keeps everything moving and everything in place. Going further, we can accurately say that we are also completely depraved. Depraved. It's a theological word that gets thrown around quite a bit. It's not a word we use very often unless we're talking about people that we consider to be completely degenerate within a society. But the Bible says all the time, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned. Now, it's very fascinating that in Greek, the word sinned is actually pointing back to a moment in time, one moment in time that has repercussions. For all have sinned. The idea is, is that we have sinned in Adam, as the Scripture says, for as in Adam all die, or through one man sin entered into the world, according to Romans chapter 5. And we've inherited that sinful nature from them. We're born sinners. There's a debate going on with, with uh, philosophers and authors in the 19th century. Is man born good? Is man born bad? Well, the scripture takes the side completely that man is born with an inclination toward evil. Now, you don't believe me. Don't believe me. Let me ask you, if, uh, if you don't believe me, I want to ask you a question. Do you have children? Did you teach your children to lie when they were little? Ch- when they were little, did you say? Did you do that when something's broken? And what's their normal response? No. Now you go. Hmm. You're good. I believe you. Your reaction is is uh, you did it. It's pretty obvious that you did it. We're trying to work with my three and a half year old son right now. Did you do that? No. Did you pick that up and drop it? Yes. Did you break it? No. (laughs) See, we have this sinful nature that comes from when we're children. It starts there. We have inherited. For all have sinned. And some people say, well, if I inherited the sinful nature of my parents, how can I then be held to an account? Well, that's where the second part of this verse comes in. For all have sinned, in essence, in Adam, and present tense, Fall short; that you are a sinner by nature and by choice of the glory of God, and we all are. I'm, I am too. We are all our sinners by nature and by choice. Now, here's another scripture I'd like to bring to your attention: Psalm 51.5. This is David. He said, "Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me." He's not saying that he was born out of immorality. That's not what he's saying in that verse. He's saying that I was born a sinner. That I inherited a sinful nature. That each one of us have that same sinful nature. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 10 through 19, when he says this: As it is written by the Spirit of God, he's writing this, none is righteous, no, not one. I mean, you kind of wonder if Paul said, There is none righteous, and someone went, Well, I am. And he's like, No, not one There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So we are completely, in our essence, depraved. Now now that we have this assessment, we, we, the, the EKG is printing out and showing our heart's condition. We've done all the tests. We've gone through all of it. What do we do with it? Now we can say, I ignore this and I, dis- I totally disregard it. I mean, some people do that. What happens if you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you're, you're, you've got like 90% blockage, you need surgery. And you go, no, I'm fine, I feel great. I'm going to go run a marathon. What's going to happen? You're a ticking time bomb. Are you not? You're going to die. You're going to struggle. You're going to suffer. You can either reject it or you can agree with it and embrace it and then make the changes necessary to, to, to find that life, that health. So it requires us, if we're to really do what this passage says in Matthew chapter 5, it requires us embracing God's diagnosis honestly. Don't try to defend it, don't try to make it better than it is. We have a tendency to do that. We have a tendency to def- try to define things and make things sound better than they are. We do that all the time in our world, do we not? Remember in the 1970s, you bought a car that someone else had owned, and it was called a what car? Used. Now what do we call it? Pre-owned. It's pre-owned. Makes it sound better to us, right? We say, we don't have a sin problem. We say, oh, I've got some habits that are bad, or I've got problems, or I have struggles. I'm still waiting for the person to go, I'm a depraved, rotten sinner brother. <laughs> okay, we're Very rarely, we try to, we do, we try to make ourselves be better than we are. Do we not? All the time. All the time. You know, it's interesting. There was a test done, and I, I can't remember exactly the details of it, but there was a test done where people were to write down their favorite movies. And it was interesting that these guys that were putting out the test, they had said that it, people didn't pick the movies that they really liked. They picked the movies that made them look smart. We try to make ourselves look better than we are, do we not? Have you ever done that? You're like, I watch Shakespeare. Of course I watch Shakespeare. I hate Shakespeare. We try to make ourselves look better than we really are. And we have to accept God's diagnosis that we are sinners. Each one of us are in this room without exception. Are sinners and native as Savior. We all have a sinful condition. We need to embrace this honestly. And if we're going to embrace this honestly, it means this. First of all, drop the masquerade. Quit playing around. Drop the mask away. Raid, quit pretending that you've got all your life together. Quit. Just stop. You know, I'm reminded of the movie The Great Outdoors in the ni- late 1980s. It had John Candy and Dan Aykroyd in it. Anybody ever remember that movie? In, in, in this movie, it was they were going on this camping trip with their families. They were married to sisters, and Dan Aykroyd is this really well-to-do businessman, and John Candy's just a normal schlub, you know. And uh, John, um, Dan Aykroyd can't resist an opportunity to show how uncouth and uncivilized Candy is and how great he is and how wonderful he is. And it comes to the end of the movie and you find out that Aykroyd had been fired from his job and he lost everything in some bad investment deals. And he's totally pretending. He was bankrupt. See, many of us do the same thing. We try to make ourselves so great and not realizing how bankrupt we really are. Drop the masquerade. Who are you trying to fool? You know, I, I think most of the time we just want other people to think better of us than we really are. You know, when I've struggled with sin in my life, and I'll talk to my wife about it, and my wife is so gracious. She, she looks at me, and she's like, you know, you're trying to make this sound better. And I see through this. And I'm like, I know. She's like, and I still love you. And I'm like, okay, hug time, hug, hug, hug. But it's true, you know. We have a tendency to do. We, we do that. Do you not? You ever sinned against your spouse if you're married and try to make it not sound so bad? Like, honey, I, I just overdrew the account slightly. How bad? $4,000. <laughs> you know what I mean? And we just make it, we try to make it sound better than it is. So drop the masquerade. Now, we need to get back to our text. When Jesus talks about the word pure, look at the word pure there for a moment. It says that we're to be pure in heart. We need to find exactly what that means, pure in heart. We need to look at the word pure. In Greek, the word is katharos. And it means without mixture. What is separated, purged, hence clean, pure, unmixed, without undesirable elements. Um, it also means those spiritually clean in this context because we're purged or purified by God, free from the contaminating and soiling influences of sin. Now, the word for heart here is cardia, from which we get the word cardiac, right? You have cardiac unit. It's The root word for that is, is uh cardia, and it's the word heart. And it's used to speak of the center of one's being, the center of who we are. The person then who is pure in heart and is pure in regards to their motives and their desires. It doesn't mean completely sin-free because we're not going to be completely sin-free until we're in glory. So we're saying in pure in heart, it's having right motives and right inclinations. Now, even then, we know that we struggle with sin and that we our motives are not pure. Before God, but the idea is is bringing it to God to have Him purify us and let Him perform surgery on us. So, what we mean by that is this: we need to be checking our motives and why we do what we do before God. If we're going to be pure, we have to understand what our motives are. Why are we doing this? Are we trying to manipulate? Are we trying to get what we want? Are we trying to fool people? Are we trying to hide behind this masquerade of pride? Are we trying to get people to esteem us in a certain way and think we're better than another person? We need to check our motives on why we're doing what we're doing. If we're to be pure in heart, it means that we're without guile, without any other ulterior motives or hidden agendas. You ever been around someone that you feel has a total hidden agenda? Yeah it's it's not it's it's a hard thing. You just never know if they're telling the truth or not. You ever been around someone like that? You like I don't know at work? You ever experienced that at work? They come up to you and they're saying something to you and you don't know if they're being real or not. See, a person who's pure in heart is being real. They're not being duplicitous. They're not trying to be deceitful. They're laying it on the table. They're being pure in heart this catharos that's what's going on there without mixture they, without guile without any other regular intent and we need to make sure that we're checking our motives and laying them before the altar why am i doing what we're doing and asking god to continually renew us so we need to also not only check our motives but we need to make sure that we are rejecting any type of manipulation rejecting any type of manipulation being honest with ourselves You know, one of the biggest manipulators in Scripture was Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a huge manipulator. Because, see, what happens is, and we try to do this with God, we try to manipulate God. We think, for whatever dumb reason, that we're smarter than God. I've seen people do this. When they have a heart problem, a relational issue, or they get fired from a job and they're struggling, and then they make deals with God, that they're going to do something that God wants, if God will, in turn, give them this. And what happens? They get that thing, and do they do what God wants them to do? No, they don't. See, Pharaoh did that. After the plagues were coming upon the Egyptians, Pharaoh says, Moses, pray for me. I was wrong. I'm going to let him go. And and, and Moses goes, I can see that your heart's not right, but I'm going to pray for you anyway. So he prays for him. The plague goes away. And rather than following through with his word, he turns back and and says, no, 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 I'm not going to let him go. See, he's manipulating. As soon as the, the plague's consequence was gone, he felt he didn't need to do it any longer. He was trying to manipulate God and show that he was in charge. And then when the, the next plague came, he was stuck again. So he's trying to manipulate again. But see, God's not fooled by that. We can't manipulate God. And we need to make sure that we're not manipulating other people too. Now, when you look at other people, do you think of what you can get from them? Relationally? And you determine whether or not that friendship or that relationship is then beneficial or not to you, and if it's not, then you just cast them by the wayside. We all struggle with that in some way, shape or form. We have to reject any type of manipu, um, reject any type of manipulation. How are we to respond to this admonition that Jesus gives us that only the pure in heart will see God? See, we, we can see that we're not pure in heart. Our hearts are desperately sick diseased and completely depraved. We've had wrong motives and we seek to manipulate others. And there are times when we we can see that we are completely condemned under God's wrath and judgment. And we don't talk about this often in the church any longer. That God is not only a God of love, but He's a God of wrath. You can't separate the two. There are two sides of one coin. And we forget how much we are under God's condemnation. You know, The book of Psalms, especially Psalm 7, captures this. I want to share this with you. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Do you think that all these sins that are going on in our world today have caught God off guard or unnoticed? If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his skull his violence descends. See, God has the, the ability and the desire to just judge us instantaneously. But we know according to Second Peter, and it's not up there, but God, does, God wants our repentance. He's not willing that any should perish. But many would come to repentance. And we know that God does not delight in the death of anyone, according to the book of Ezekiel. So he desires us to come to him. But yet we are, we are deserving of his wrath and judgment. So what do we do? What do we do? See, I know that we've spoken about this before. But this story is too good to, to, to just tell once. Because really, the reality is, is we need a heart transplant. We need a new heart. I saw Kendall here earlier. It's always great to see Kendall. Uh, for those that have been here for a period of time, you know that Kendall, uh, this is Keith and Linda's granddaughter, was born with a heart defect. Is that right? Had a heart defect. And it became pretty obvious early on she was going to need a heart transplant, that her heart was irredeemable. But she was too young for a transplant. And they wouldn't do a transplant until she was a year old. Until she was a year old. And then I remember when she turned a year old, she gets put on the transplant list, and I remember getting a phone call from Linda. I was in my office, and she said, Kendall, she was so excited, Kendall has a heart for the transplant. Everybody started to pray, and we, we brought a lot of people to go pray. And, but even as I got off the phone with her, and I hung up, and I was excited, and then I stopped, and I realized something. Though I was excited for Kendall, I realized that another family was going through unbelievable grief. Because a child had to die in order for this child to live. It's a very heartbreaking story. And then she has that new heart and then there's the danger of the flesh rejecting that heart. But praise God everything went well. But see that that picture of Kendall is a picture of what Jesus did for us. See, we had a heart disease, we were just like Kendall. Someone had to die to give us a new heart, and that was Jesus. Jesus died to give us a new heart. Because ours was be and, and completely irreparable. But we have this flesh that's always in danger of rejecting it. And we have to fight that flesh to let that new heart permeate all who we are. Jesus talks about this, or actually we see this, excuse me, in the book of Ezekiel, as the prophet Ezekiel by the Holy Spirit is speaking about what will happen during the time of Christ. And, and he says, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they might walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Gives us a new heart. And how should we respond to this new heart? I mean, when we know that we're desperate, we're on the, the table and we're going to die. And that heart's not always, I mean, that heart has a, a certain time. We have, to, we have to receive that heart when we acknowledge it, when it's there. We need to respond humbly. That's what God wants us to do. We have to respond humbly to that new heart that he desires to give us through the person of his son who died on the cross for your sins and mine. Responding humbly. Now what does it mean to then respond humbly? First of all, it remo- involves this, requires receiving the savior. We all have to receive what he has for us. Have you received the Savior? I mean, you might think your heart is not that bad, but I've hoped to show you as we've hooked ourselves up to the Word of God that we all have a heart defect. And we all need a heart transplant, and we can't do that ourselves. See, we can't save ourselves no more that you can perform your own heart surgery. You have to have God perform that surgery. You have to receive the Savior. Secondly, you have to live by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. What does that mean to live by the Spirit? How do I know that when I'm living by the Spirit, is this some ethereal feeling? Are all my decisions perfect when I'm living by the Spirit? No. Living by the Spirit means finding your joy in God and filling ourselves with the things of God that we might accurately do what God wants us to do and experience the joy of knowing Him. And also, That also entails leaving the sins that, that grieve Him behind, living by the Spirit. So we must be receiving the Savior, living by the Spirit, and then we need to be applying the Scriptures, applying the Scriptures, living our lives according to the Word of God. God God's Word is the only trusted source, the only trusted guide for living. It's got everything within it. You know, I'm amazed. I'm an information junkie. I really enjoy information. All the time. And I like getting in discussions with people, and then you get into disagreement, and what do you do? My daughter goes, go to the Google. (laughs) Go to the Google, right? You go to the Google. Why? Because Google has the answers for everything, do you not? You want to know about, you know, which president or vice president was this? You want to know about NASA? You want to know something that happened to some obscure figure in the 13th century? Google knows. Google knows all. But here's the thing. Google gives information but Google can't give transformation. See, the Bible has all the answers to life and transformation. You want to know how to forsake sin? It's in there. It's in here. You want to know how to grow in holiness and live a life that's pleasing to God? It's in here. You want to know how to be a better husband? It's in here. Do you want to know how to be a better wife? It's in here. You want to be a better father? It's in here. You want to be a better, better uh, mother? It's in here. Do you want to know how to handle relationships and how to work for the glory of God? It's in here. Do you want to know how to live a life that brings a smile to God's face? It's in here. Everything is inside this book. But we need to not just read it. Notice the word applying it. It's not enough to just read it because we can read it and forget about it. We can't forget about it. We have to read it and then apply it to our lives. Now, I want us to look at also that word blessed. It's interesting living this type of life means that we're blessed are those who are pure in heart now it's the word there in greek is makarios makarios and uh it, it's interesting because this word is it actually was a name it uh, was the name of an island off of the coast of greece the makarios island it was known as the blessed island because it was self-contained The residents didn't feel need to leave this island in order to get their needs met. The island offered everything that they needed. The natural resources of the island were so thick, so rich, and so fruitful and so productive that everything they needed to enjoy their lives was already built in. See, the inhabitants of this island were self-sustained and self-contained without having to run to another island to get their needs met. The blessed island provided everything they needed. See, all the stuff that we, we get is outside of us. The new car, the new house, the new money are all fine, but they're all extra. They're a bonus. See, the, in the biblical world of being blessed, you should be okay being on the island. So it means. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. You find your joy. You're in a state of approval because of what Christ has done. By receiving that, then you will want to live this pure in heart life that God has. You'll have a desire of it. It should be a byproduct of your relationship with God. You can't live in such a way of being pure in heart without Christ. It's only through Him that we find that state of approval. Now, I'd be remiss if we didn't look at the second part of the, uh, of the verse Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, right? What shall be the result of those who are pure in heart? They shall see God. The word there is horao, which means I see, look upon, experience, perceive, discern, beware. And who will we see? God himself. Now, what do you long to see? Tell me what you long to see. You know, I'm reminded this past week um, with the Red Sox winning the World Series. I lived in New England for a while. And in 2004, uh, it was just right before we moved to New England, I remember hearing stories about what happened with people uh, after the Red Sox won. Not only did they have a party, people visited the cemeteries, took the newspapers, and they put notes on the gravestones of their family members saying, We won. Why would they do that? It's because their relative longed. They were such a fan that they longed to see the Red Sox win. I mean, it had been 86 years of futility. I mean, the Cubs got that beat, but. but see, people longed to see it, and they didn't, and their life was known by a sports team. I mean, even us, we have things we long to see. Do you have things you long to see in your lifetime? You have your bucket list, what you want to see, what you want to do, what you want to experience. You want to see beautiful sights. You want to see things like like Mount Everest, or maybe you want to see the Grand Canyon, or Machu Picchu, or the Eiffel Tower, or the Leaning Tower of Pisa, or Big Ben in London, or maybe you want, want to run with the bulls in Pamplona because you're psychotic, or maybe you want to, you know, maybe you want to go to see uh, what's the place where the boats are, where they, where they, they Venice, yeah. Maybe you want to go there. Maybe you want to go to see the Great Wall or, or see Niagara Falls or Victoria Falls. Or maybe you want to go on to, to the Sahara Desert. Ah, maybe you, you have this huge bucket list of things you want to see. And I'll tell you, right now, I mean, may, those are great things. Or maybe nothing on this earth you want to see, but you've seen pictures of the Hubble images from Hubble, the, the Hubble Telescope. And you think, wow, I'd love to go out in space and see all the things in space and the Milky Way and all these different galaxies and Andromeda and all these wonderful and brilliant stars and planets far away. And I'd love to see that. And I'll tell you right now, those things are great. But they don't hold a candle to seeing the face of God. None of the mysteries of the universe altogether could compare to the reality of seeing almighty God. That's just amazing to me. I mean, beauty beyond comprehension. It's just overwhelming to see. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God in all of his glory. I mean, the scripture says very clearly in Exodus thirty-three twenty 20, that no one shall see the face of God and live. God is completely holy. And you know that the Bible says if we don't live a holy life that we won't see God? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Bring that up for me. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness is not optional. Like going to McDonald's and they hand you a Happy Meal and you go, oh, where's the ketchup? Oh, that's optional. You have to ask for it. Holiness is not something you just ask for. People think, oh, I can have Jesus and not be holy. No! strive for that that's what this pure in heart means it's still being holy being distinct being different having a pure motive and a pure heart that's what god desires of us now if we're to this we need to be growing hungry in what god has for us growing hungry for what god has for us you know I, I, how many of you ever come home on a really hard day and you smell the food in the air. I love when I come home and my wife's making spaghetti sauce. You have the garlic and the onions and it's floating in there. And <sighs> You feel this sense of calm and peace. And yet you still feel hungry. You ever been hungry? What do you do when you're hungry? I made the mistake of going to Costco the other day Hungry. Sometimes my wife and I like to go on dates when we're really trying to, you know, really cheap. Let's go to the samples! Yes! How many of you have ever done that? Come on, admit it. Admit it. But it's true. I mean, we want this this hunger for God. I mean, we have our appetite wet for something. And and is your appetite wet and hungry for God and seeing Him? Does that pique your interest that you want more of who He is? So we have this bland character of God with this almost duck dynasty-like beard. We do. We have this weird character of God. that We don't can't comprehend God in all of his glory and brilliance because our minds are so dull. That he's beyond anything that we can possibly comprehend or, or even begin to fathom. We need to grow hungry for God. And if we're to really grow hungry for God and live this life that God requires, then we must make sure that we're rejecting worldly garbage. See, the problem is, is we can't grow hungry for God because we're too busy eating at the garbage of the world. We're too busy taking in all of these entertainments and websites and, and all of these other worldly things that take our eye off who God is. The reason that we're dull to the things of God is because we're too busy eating of these other things. And I, I'm there with you. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm perfect in this. I'm not. And I struggle with this every day. I want to grow more in my understanding of God and hungering for God and seeing who He is and yearning for Him because when I do get a taste, I want more. But my sinful nature tries to reject that new heart. And the sinful nature wants something else. And I've got to learn to mortify my flesh by taking up my cross daily, by dying to myself, by considering myself crucified with Christ and knowing that it's no longer I who live, but Christ is in me because He gave me His heart. In the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God, as Galatians 2.20 says. So that's what we need to make sure that we are doing. That means rejecting worldly garbage and remembering the grace that was given. Remember what God has done for you, that He gave you His heart, that He died that you might live. Remembering that grace that was giving that He gave His Son for you. He gave you this gift of grace, this gift of salvation. He's given you something that you can't begin to comprehend and it's nothing that you deserved. Why He gave His Son for you is because you were an object of His love. He seeks to have a relationship with you and He wants to have an intimate relationship that is beyond imagining. As the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we with with unveiled face, See, Moses, after he would go into the very presence of God in the Old Testament, would have to put a veil on his face because this, he, he was resonating and, and reflecting the glory of God was on him. And he had to con- cover his face because it freaked people out. He was almost glowing. And it says that we will have unveiled face. We will be able to see the glory of the Lord, and we will be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is of the Spirit. And this, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, check this out. Behold, we are God's children now. We have trusted in Christ and believed in what He has done for us. And what we will be, what we will be, has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. See Him as He is. I, I can't begin to fathom that. And all of His glory, and all of His wonder, we shall see Him as He is. So we just must make sure that we're rejecting garbage, remembering the grace that was given. And in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, excuse me, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. That's the glory of heaven. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully as I have been fully known. See, that's what unbel- unbelievable what God has done for us. And if we're to grow hungry for what he has for us in glory, then that requires us focusing our minds on the coming glories of heaven. Focusing our minds on the coming glories of heaven. See, Many of us don't have that longing for heaven. We're, we're pretty content with where we are. You know, have you ever had a vacation that you're getting ready to go on, you really look forward to, and everybody was talking about that vacation? Is it here yet? Is it here yet? And they were so excited about it. You know, I I feel that way with regards to heaven. Am I home yet? Am I home yet? When am I gonna get there? Not that I wanna just, you know, die right here, but I'm not I'm not fearful of what's to come. I'm excited. And I should look forward to it, just like my kids do on vacation. Are we we there yet? Are we there yet? I mean, we should be like little kids in the car going on vacation going, Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Do you ever have your kids do that? My kids do that. One time, one of my kids thought it was really funny to do it right after we pulled out of the the driveway. We had a seven-hour drive. (laughs) Are we there yet? Don't talk again. Because you will meet Jesus. (laughs) Are we there yet? we excited? Do we have that hunger for God? we need to be focusing on the glories of heaven? Because as the book of Revelation 22 verse 4 says, we will see his face. And his name will be on our foreheads. That will be a great day, will it not? Seeing his face. Longing for that day. I mean, there's, there's people that I want to see in heaven. There's some family members that I want to see. I want to see my dad. I was only four when my father passed away. I want to see him. I want to interact with him. I want to see my grandparents. I want to hug them. But you know what? I want to see Jesus more. So much, much more. Everything else will fail in comparison. Seeing Jesus. You know, it's interesting. I want to conclude with this. We're talking about the heart. Do you know that, the you know, there's... A, a story that some people miss miss heaven by 1 foot. You ever heard that? Some say 6 inches, but I say it's by a foot. You know why? It's because they have it in here but not in here. And that's about a foot. I measured it yesterday just to make sure. Cuz we can have something in our mind but not have it in the reality of who we are. Do you have Jesus? Have you received his gift of a new heart? Are you seeking to be pure in heart? Living the life that he desires you to live? You know, ask him. He'll give you his heart. He died to give it to you. We have to receive it and then live our life in the knowledge of it for his glory and our joy. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you died to give us life. That you sent your Son to assume our flesh, to take our sins and sufferings upon himself, that we might have life in him. Lord, I pray that we might live and be pure in heart, living in the reality of this new life that we have been given, checking our motives, continually hooking ourselves up to the word of God, allowing you to scan our souls, to show us who we are and what sins we need to put to death and how we are to live in righteousness. Lord, please help us not to go forth just hearing the word and not be transformed. We don't need information. We want transformation. And we ask that you use us, that we might be your children, to experience the reality of that relationship that we have in and through you. And may we be different. May we point other people to the great physician who will give them a new heart as well. Lord, help us to be pure in heart in every facet of our lives, at our workplaces, as we interact with our bosses or coworkers or employees, whether it's at our schools or their students or teachers, whether it's at our home, in our marriages, or with our children, or even with our parents. Lord, help us to be pure in heart because we know that the the goal and the outcome of our faith will be to see you face to face. And Lord, nothing on earth can compare with that glorious truth. We thank you and we praise you for what you have done for us through your Son, died on the cross for our sins and rose again for our justification. Glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.